Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in a series of spoiler special podcasts. And this one is dedicated to a movie that is just about to come out, or has just come out, depending on when you're listening to this, on home entertainment. Yes, sweet, sweet DVD, sweet, sweeter Blu-ray, and sweet, sweet, sweetest of all, 4K. Mmm, 4K. It is, of course... Cruella. Yes, Cruella, the 101 Dalmatians prequel starring Emma Stone as a version of Cruella de Vil. And joining me to discuss this movie over the next 30 to 40 minutes or so are three of the finest dog thieves that I know, Helen O'Hara. Um, as my own lawyer, I'd like to claim that I'm not a dog thief. Thank you very you much. You have stolen many dogs, Helen, and I've helped you. I have stolen many, like, you know, squishes of dogs' little furry faces, but that's about as far that's as it's gone. That's what, that's what oh, I meant. That's, I mean, okay. Yeah, not... don't you go to the, the famous uh, app, Steal My Doggy, if you never <laughs> go to that one? <laughs> I'm just saying it's not, you know, dishonest misappropriation of property belonging to another with intention permanently to deprive, which would make it theft. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> We're also joined by Beth Webb. Hello. Yes, devout cat lady here to... Still, still dogs for the for the greater good. <laughs> I thought you were about to start off devout Catholic here. Devout Catholic, Spectacles, testicles, wallet, watch. No, don't steal any dogs. It's not what we like. We don't do it in the Catholic Church. Um, and last but not least is uh, is a devout, devout doggy doggy man. I mean, not in a sex way. It is, of <laughs> course. This has gone badly. Uh, I should write down my intros more often. Anyway. <laughs> This, this is what happens when I don't write down an intro. This is what happens when I go, you know what? I'm just going to freewheel it and I'll be fine. And then I accuse Beth of being a devout Catholic, Helen of stealing dogs, and Ben Travis of liking a doggy doggy. Hello, Ben. How are you? <laughs> Hello. I was significantly better about a minute ago. I wonder what that could be. Um, yeah, I, like Helen, have not been stealing any dogs, but I do like that where I live in South London, about five o'clock every evening, we have some a couple of yappy little dogs near us that always one of them will start barking really loudly and the next one then will will kind of kick off after that and then there's a couple of bigger dogs like a couple of big labradors who'll start going (laughs) and it's like the twilight bark i live the the twilight Twilight bark Bark. every single night wow truly are living in a disney film ben i am i'm loving it until chris comes along and says weird shit (laughs) muddies the waters (laughs) <laughs> There's no doggy doggy in Disney movies. Oh my word! Anyway, <clears throat> um, oh, it's off to a good start. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Um, are we? So, Beth, you're not a dog person. No. What I the don't hell are you doing in this podcast? Them. Are you? You've gone full Cruella. Yes, Vanilla de Web. Um, out here to well, you know, I don't know where we've got to here. You, you know what happens with Cruella? Like she doesn't like dogs. That's not the the fundamental kind of story. <laughs> That's not here. her selling point. <laughs> Boy, have I misread this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, except here she does. Here she is literally a dog person. Well, yes. she's not literally a dog person no, because not, then she would be a dog who's also a person. A, no, but like a dog person is like a thing that people can literally be, which she literally is. Mm. She's not, you know, a werewolf. 
domesticated werewolf. No, that's our werewolf. next spoiler special. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is not Werewolves Within, the prequel to that. It's a prequel to 101 Dalmatians. And before we get into the movie, uh, boy, you must be chomping it a bit to hear us get into the movie after that <laughs> intro. Uh, let's have an interview that I recorded with the film's director, Craig Gillespie. Um, some considerable time ago, many, many moons ago, at one point we were going to drop this around the time of its release on Disney+. Plus. But then we decided to hold it for the home entertainment release. Aren't we nice? So here we go. I don't remember a single thing we discussed, uh, but I do remember having a good time with Craig Gillespie, who is good people. So here we go. Craig Gillespie, do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this very special Cruella spoiler special by the film's director, Craig Gillespie. How in the devil are you, sir? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. I should have said, how the devil are you? But <laughs> what can you do? Yeah, you played the, the Horace character. <laughs> what are you saying? What are you saying, Craig? <laughs> I, I'm just going with your dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, well, we only have about 25 minutes to talk about this movie, and there's a lot to talk about. So uh, I wanted to start with, I think, the sort of the, the central conceit, the central question of the film, something that, you know, whether you were wrestling with it as a filmmaker, which is that balance between Estella and Cruella. You know, nature versus nurture, how much of her is is good, how much of her is is truly bad. And it all comes to head in that incredible wonder by the uh, the fountain in Regent's Park. No, I think it's, um, it was a huge conversation, obviously, throughout the prep of this with our writers. And trying to and trying to delineate that and what you know what that is and ultimately there's a lot of there's actually a lot of both going on and very much very much obviously the nature being that we start with that idea with with her that she has this talent she has this way that she needs to express herself and it's being suppressed and she's just born with it and so that's that's you know I thought that was very apropos for you know particularly how society is at the moment and what's been going on and really being able to embrace, you know, yourself. And in this case, like coming from that period, she's being like, uh, she's being suppressed with that. She's like, you know, they wanted to color between the lines. It's a very controlled uh, society. And that's sort of where the whole punk movement is born out of that and rebelling against that establishment. And, and it's, so that was a beautiful fit for her character. Then there's certain things that happen in terms of uh, nurture, obviously with, being raised by the by the mother that she's basically adopted by, and that she you know and she's she certainly has traits that she uh, that that she takes with her, but then it's also trying to please that mother that's and, and not and not stay true to herself. It was a real conflict with her character. So they've got all that going on, and then the trauma of what happens with her mother, and then discovering the Baroness's complicity with that also shapes like her journey. So I think without, so it's really a combination of both because without the, without that trauma and that emotional journey going on, I don't think she would have been that Corella. Like she ends up having to embrace herself and her inner self, but she's done it through this tumultuous journey that takes her to the dark side. It's like her talent may have gone a different way, you know, otherwise. Hmm. Can you talk about that, that, that scene in Regent's Park, which which I believe was shot in Greenwich uh, as well, but uh, just on the road from where I am right now. But uh, uh, so that is staged. The, the film is so stylish and you move the camera so deliberately and so often throughout the film. And 
there it seems to be a very conscious and deliberate decision to stage that as as a winner. Can you talk about that? that I love decision? it you, instead of you picking that up. It's like uh, you know, fortunately that shot was done later in the film as well, probably almost towards the end of the film, um, last few weeks. And uh, she visited she visits that fountain I think four or five times throughout, and it's this touchstone for her mother. And uh, you see that evolution of that conflict happening where at first she's like trying to trying to do right by her mother and she's very pleased that things are going the way that her mother would like. And then she has to almost like abandon her mother and turn against her to to go back and sort of defend her mother. It's sort of this really uh, interesting di- dichotomy there. So when she gets to this final moment, she's breaking her bond with her mother and she's saying, I have to be who I am and I'm sorry. It's like, and, uh, and she's almost walking away from that commitment. Um, but and it's an incredibly powerful scene written by Tony. And on the day, it was, uh, we we're building up to this scene and there's like enormous amount of, you know, camera work going on in this film. And we had shot list- listed this scene previously and I had a techno crane there and I had set, you know, dolly shots and things set up for this scene. And as I got to that day, I'd been listening to uh, some music and I sent it to Emma Stone. And I said, this is sort of the mood of what I'm thinking about for this scene. And as I was listening to it, literally that morning, I'm like, you know what? I think this just needs to be a wanna. And I called her and I said, I'm just going to do one handheld shot for three minutes. And uh, I'm going to shoot it at dusk. So you have 20 minutes. <laughs> and I'm not going to stop. So don't think that you're doing it wrong. I'm just going to shoot until it's too dark. And, and so, you know, I gave her that music and we prepped and we, it was an amazing experience because we're in this massive production of a film and it's, it, it couldn't be more intimate. It's like we're doing a, a tiny little indie movie. All the crew left because you see it's like almost a 360 degree shot. Um, so she has all this space and it's, it's Nicholas handheld with the camera and a guy with a bounce card and that's it. And she, there's no, there's no other lighting involved. And it's just shot at that perfect time of day. And she came in and she did seven takes. They were all amazing, all varying degrees, like incredibly emotional. We've got to the sixth take and you're watching it. It's like three minutes long. And I'm just like every move, every moment she's turning and, and, and the way she's doing it is, is extraordinary. And, she, and then she stops at that very last moment and she's like, but I still love you. And she got so emotional there. It was such an incredible moment. And then she turned to leave the camera jams. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, you know, and it's, oh my God. And uh, it was, to me, it was the take, but I was thought, all right, there's other great, amazing takes as well. But then my editor looked at it, Tatiana, and she's like, that's the take she picked. And immediately, immediately the next day, I'm calling Max Wood out, a visual effects guy. And I'm like, is there a way to splice? Like, she, as she's, because it happened three seconds after she finishes her dialogue and she turns to leave. I'm like, is there a way to splice that into another take without cutting? And they started working on it immediately. And we saw pretty quickly that they could do it, which was amazing. So we got to keep the take. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually, a, it's actually a tour, not a wonder. Yes, technically a tour. Don't tell, don't tell Emma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's a big fan of this podcast, Craig. You're screwed. She's gonna, she, yeah. she listens to this thing 24-7. Yeah. She's been saying it's a one all this time. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. And uh, 
I think I think that's that scene and what we've been talking about the whole idea of nature versus nurture and uh, it gets to the heart of the film and the heart of Cruella's conflict and I was I'm intrigued to see how if if you had any battles internal or otherwise in terms of pushing the darkness of this movie a movie that starts with childbirth and you know with you know, drawing attention to itself and it's very meta in that way. It revolves around a plot to kill a baby, which is very dark. You do that Disney thing as well, that classic traditional Disney thing of killing a parent in horrible, gruesome, grisly circumstances as well. Um, and it's about Cruella de Vil, who is an unapologetically evil character in the films and the books that we've seen her in previously. So you want to be pushing that side of it as well, but at the same time, you're also making an entertainment in which the audience have to root for your main character. So what sort of balance did you strike there? Was it was it a hard one to strike? I, I for me, I was I was incredibly excited by by that uh, challenge because what I love um, is the tone that I get to live in. So I love that I can go very dark, but then there can be a light touch like immediately after it, or sometimes within the same scene. And I think it's that balance that keeps it entertaining and, and they can keep the audience, they can invested in it because ultimately everybody's having fun, you know, like it's in the film. It's like, there's this sort of like this sort of this reckless joy to it, I think. And this abandon and the music like reinforced that. So I always, I love to be able to push those two extremes. When they sent me the script that was baked in there that, you know, the mother dies and, you know, and uh, that you know they try to kill the baby. That so that was I was like that's great. But then what I you know when I brought Tony McNamara in to work on this, and Emma had wanted him as well from the favorite. Mm. That's because I needed that tone and that sort of like that balance. And it's like one of the scenes that actually comes to mind is a scene like when Corella discovers that the Baroness has her mother's necklace, and the Baroness is so flip in that scene. And she's like, you know, who is this woman? And the Baroness is like, not really the point of the story. Is that it's the point is like how she ruined my day, you know? And so she's talking about murdering somebody. And there were certainly some uh, moments with Disney where they're like, well, this is too flip for such, like, like such a scene that has such gravity. We're talking about her mother's death. And I was like, no, I think this tone is perfect for what we're trying to do. And I know like at the two Emmas can do that dance. Like they can balance that between the, the humor of it and then landing it emotionally. And so to me, that was like a scene that I wasn't scared of, particularly once, you know, with Tony's writing, but it was something that I think for a studio, it might be hard to look at on the page and understand tonally how that's going to work because she's so brazen about it. But I just knew with those actors, we you'd be able to do it. So in, in terms of other things that were baked into the script, the idea, I mean, Horace keeps asking, what's the angle? And the angle of the movie is, of course, that the Baroness is Cruella's mother. Um, was that baked in the script when you came yes, on board as well? That was, that was baked in as well. I think uh, that we had that skeleton all the way up, the whole twist at the end and how she sets her up. That was all in there. And so we had that to work with. And But then what wasn't actually, then it was, again, the tone of it, the humor of it, pushing like the really sort of aggressive visual style and punk attitude and what those pop-up shows would be. But also in something that Tony cracked was originally in the script, halfway through the movie, they part ways. And then it's about Corella bringing the Baroness down, but they never had any screen time together. And he came up with this brilliant idea that she stays undercover 
working at the Baroness's office. So you get all these like delicious scenes with the two of them going head to head and trying to figure out what the other one knows. And to me, that was the movie, you know. You got that sort of Clark Kent Superman. Exactly. And, and, and Emma was uh, concerned about that, that, you know, it seems a little too obvious, but, you know, I take my glasses off and suddenly I'm Corella, but I'm like, no, no, there's a, there's a drastic difference between what Corella looks like and what Estella looks like. <laughs> yeah. I, again, with something like this, did you, did you see this movie? Did you consider this movie uh, in, in a way of standing on its own two feet or were you thinking of setting things up down the line in, in terms of, in terms of filling in the the, the sort of ephemera of, of Cruella, you know, where she gets the surname from, where she gets the car from, filling in her, her, her love or hatred, rather, of Dalmatians and making it all organic without it feeling like you're setting something up or that you're simply ticking boxes. There, I mean, there was certain, there just wasn't that much of a laundry list of things we had to do. So it wasn't that hard in a way, because amazingly, there's so little backstory to Cruella. Yeah. And we were so going off on such a tangent and setting it in 1970s punk London. So there were certain things that, you know, I, obviously the Dalmatians are going to be in it. Um, and then addressing that, I, I, I always wanted the dogs to be present, but like sort of like a second plot point in a way, and also grounded in their reality. Like I was always, always trying to do stuff that dogs could feasibly do. Like I never wanted to get to a point where they're, they're not they're not grounded in reality and they're starting to become animated characters so that was critical to me so i was you know so i enjoyed the challenge of how do we make these dogs work and you know i literally you know kind of stole the idea from snatch of like the dog swallowing the necklace because like it's so it's such and obviously it doesn't seem like a disney motif but it's such a um it's it was such a great way to keep them in the in the film and have and have them necessary, you know. Um, and so they get to kidnap them. They got to, you know, Horace and Jasper are dealing with that the whole time, and then setting up the mystique of like the myth of Corella, and and uh, and the the puppy killer is like, well, how do we address that? And I thought I really we came up with this idea of like the perception in the media and how you can use that to your advantage. And I love that she ends up owning it. And letting people think that because it's it's better for her reputation. <laughs> and then, of course, she she gives Ponco and Partita. Yes. To uh, yes, but to the general public, you know, yeah. we're le- they're left thinking she's a puppy girl. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, fact, she's benevolent puppy god, just throwing puppies out left, right, and center. Yeah, yeah that's uh, on the side. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, in terms of in terms of addressing the uh, the, the wider mythology of <laughs> this is a strange sentence, but the wider mythology of One Hundred and One Dalmatians and the and the previous movies, uh, you do have Roger and Anita in this movie, but you keep them very much apart. Was there more with them at any point, or is basically what we see now? <laughs> we never shot more with them. Um, uh, there was uh, there was actually there was one scene with Roger where Corella comes in and he's playing piano, um, which was a fun scene, but it was, uh, it was after the fashion show and we're going to get back to the lair and the whole fire happening. So I actually ended up reshooting that scene to something much shorter with, with Corella just picking up uh, fast food because uh, the momentum of, of the movie, it was too much screen time for that story that just, you know, wasn't where the plot was going at that point. 
So outside of that, there wasn't really much more of them, but we certainly wanted to layer them in because I feel like, you know, if there is to be a sequel, they could really, you know, they could really step up now. You understand the, you know, you understand where their history is now and where their paths may cross. Mm. And we've now got two Dalmatians, Craig, so we just need 99 more. (laughs) There might be more than one sequel, huh? It might take a while. For me, one of the key relationships in the movie, obviously there's the Baroness and, and Cruella slash Estella, but uh, Jasper's relationship with uh, Estella is really interesting. There's there's a sense to me of unrequited love from him. Was that something that you explored or seen in the, on the balcony? Well, I, I mean, I, we actually all deliberately stayed away from that. I love that there wasn't a love interest in this. It's yeah. like that it's about two strong women. And... I feel like that it's like they're incredibly good friends. It's like it's almost familial in that sense. And he's the heart of the film for me, Joel Fry. He's his his sort of her reality check and he calls her on stuff. And you can see like he wears his heart on his sleeve. And and he really cares about her. And I think it's gone it, it's gone to a, a platonic place. Like it's almost like fa- like really more family, mm-hmm. like a brotherly kind of thing. And um and so we sort of leaned into that, but it's like, it's like within that world, there's always that question of like, well, you know, I wonder what would have happened if we had have hooked up. <laughs> it's like when you get to have somebody have such an incredible intense friendship with, that's a platonic thing. So I, I loved uh, the, res- the mutual respect and the fact that he could call her on stuff and stand up to him and, and just really understood her, you know, intuitively. It's it's interesting as well how how far you push it in terms of how far she pushes Lem and how badly she treats him when she's when she's yeah. leaning when she's leaning fully into the Cruella madness that that takes hold of her in the middle of the movie. You know. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was kind of a, a surprise as as we were working on the film and starting to you know really figure out Cruella and and Emma Stone's like so so generous with her performance and she's so talented that she would have all these degrees. Like even when we started shooting Corella, she'd be like, I'm going to, I'll shoot like zero to 10. And then we'll just let me know what, it, you know, totally what you think for our film. But it wasn't that simple because she goes through so many evolutions as Corella. Like the first time we see her as Corella in the red dress, she's just playing a character. She's not thought this. I mean, she's gotten caught. She never expected to have to open her mouth in that scene, like conceptually. So she's just purely winging it, like another character for another you know, another scam that they're doing. And so you, she has to play that dance of like making things up on the fly, trying to find her voice, trying to decide. So it's a kind of a bigger, almost goofier performance. And, you know, sort of in limbo, it's kind of like, is that right? Is that where we should be? Like, because we shot that, you know, at, at, I think before we shot any of the other Corella stuff. And then you get, and then you get to the dark Corella when she discovers that her mother's been killed by the Baroness and she kind of snaps and she alienates everybody. And that's a very tough Corella, but then finding that Corella that's still tough, but fun to watch and enjoyable that you feel like there's, you know, some, some humor in there, even though she's scathing. And then she has to meld the two Corellas after the fountain scene and balance Estella and Corella and find that medium ground, which is the third act which is a more poignant one. And it's sort of like, you get, I always love to say when we were shooting that last scene at the mansion, it's kind of a graduate moment where she got everything she went, was after, you know, but and they're sitting on the bus and she's kind of like, now that I got it, is this actually what I wanted? Like she's had to give up Estella 
yeah. and become Corella and like lost some of her identity along the way. So it's like she had all these, you know, complicated nuances she had to play. So you're leaving it in a place where you can see how the Cruella we all know, the you know Glenn Close Cruella, the animated movie Cruella, could spring from the end of that movie eventually. Yeah, give it I enough think, time. She's got a, She's still got a journey to go. I think. I think. Uh, I mean, it's, she. It's it's kind of remarkable how little of Cruella there is in this film. I mean, I think there's probably five scenes of her as Cruella, fully yeah. formed. You know. So she's got a whole film she can do as Cruella. <laughs> but she's always there. She's always there under the surface. Yeah, she is. She's always <laughs> popping her head out at opportune moments. <laughs> um, it struck me watching this movie, uh, I've seen it a couple of times now as well, is there's a, a thread running through it with the Baroness that is very much about now. It's very much about toxic workplaces and abusive bosses. And it felt to me that it could almost be analogous to Hollywood. And that we, you know, we have heard horror stories throughout the years of how producers treat underlings and, you know, she's nicking her, her subordinates right. and she's throwing chairs at them and stunning them with a stun gun and, you know, saying, you know, basically everyone is an obstacle. Just get out of my way. Uh, was that, on, was that in your mind? Were you, were you taking the worst producers you've ever worked with and putting them all into the Baroness? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the worst of all of them but it's like the, it's always that sort of dichotomy of uh uh whether male or female that that, that those kind of uh highly successful like motivated sort of prototypes of 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 those productive people and particularly like in the arts it's not an uncommon thing to see and you said you know and so it's always been excused because of their talent because of their creativity so I think it was something everybody's very familiar with. And um, it's funny, it was like, it was all shot like before uh, this awareness happening, but um, uh, it was certainly, you know, it's, it's certainly something that, you know, we're, we've all lived with and are familiar with. And I think it's fun to hopefully have a, a release from that and be able to laugh at it and see how have a come up and <laughs> Yes. And you also have this, this disconnect between the Baroness and, uh, and Cruella's world, which is, as you say, you know, it's it's infused with that punk spirit, you know, and yeah. it's got that great soundtrack. My God, you got a great soundtrack here. And the Baroness is such a remove from that. Interestingly, for the Baroness, it was sort of like she decided to, I mean, she she married into that world. She wasn't born into that world, but she figured out how to play the game in that world. And it was that both both with, you know, high society and a male-dominated world. Um, and there was that great scene that Tony wrote where she's dealing with two men and she knows the guy's like, you know, embezzling money and his Swiss bank account and all that information. And you just see like how she just, because it was, a, it was a scene that was asked for actually by Disney. They were like, want to see how, like why she's successful in this world. How does she do it? And that's what Tony wrote, which I loved. <laughs> um, to sort of, sort of highlight, like, you know, how, how she's driven and how she and how she's handling this man's world. Um, so that so that was great to see. But she's also and I was very influenced by like you know the workspaces of Kristen Dior and those runway shows that you would see, and that high fashion world. So she's incredibly talented. And I, I always say like she was probably doing the Queen ten years before. I think she's starting. She's on the decline. Like she's starting to like you know her use by date is starting to you know come up and. Uh, and you, so that's that's this underlying threat that she has and that she carries with her anger and everything, 
and the desire to bring Corella into her fold because she needs that fresh young blood, you know, <laughs> to to try and like try and spuce her brown. I'm mean, sorry, uh, to try and like you know, spuce up her brand. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, I think it's why she recognizes the talent in Cruella in the first place yeah. because there there is talent in the Baroness. She was once perhaps as vital as Cruella once was, but she's become calcified over the years. Exactly. And so that's it. So she needs, she needs uh, Estella slash Corella, um, much, to, much to her <laughs> disappointment. I've got to finish off by asking about uh, another oneer that you did, which is that great shot through Liberty, which ends yeah. with Cruella on the, uh, in the toilet, not on the toilet. That'd be a very different <laughs> film uh, in the toilet. No, and not that different. <laughs> but, that's true. This is very true. <laughs> and uh can you talk about that and how you how you you did that? I presume there's a there's some stitching going yeah, on there. It's it's a, it's three different locations. Um, I just it's like it was more the idea of like this is this was the pinnacle for her to work at Liberties. It's like what she'd aspired to. It's like she'd been dreaming about it. So I really wanted to get the you know just the wonder of all of that. So to be able to do this crane shot that comes through the skylight and down four floors and onto the main floor of Liberties. And you're expecting at any moment to see her there, like like flourishing, like everywhere we go in this wana. And then you go to like the next floor. And it's like, okay, so she'll be in here somewhere working and being a seamstress. And it's like, oh no, she's not there. And then you keep going and then we find her like scrubbing toilets in the bathroom. Uh, so I just like the suspense and humor of that as well. And just and, and just introducing us to this world that she wants to be a part of and all her missed moments <laughs> along the way. <laughs> I have to say as well, Jamie Dimitri is so funny. In, oh. in that's in in, in those scenes, yeah. yeah. Scene I mean, it's like I think it was there for two days on the whole movie, and and he just absolutely kills it. I, I mean, I was, yeah, I was really working on my silent laugh behind the monitor. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way he says, "No, the other side." <laughs> face. So good. That wasn't that wasn't uh, that was something we added on the day. It wasn't in the script, but I was just like. Just to give him more real estate, I was just looking for any opportunity. <laughs> I wanted to ask about the the song that accompanies that tracking shot through Liberty, uh-huh. which is the Zombies, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, I, I guess with a movie like this, you're always going to get your first choice. You're not going to have problems clearing songs. So, can you tell me <laughs> about that one? Not true. Not true. It's really? Like they tell you constantly you're not going to get your first choice. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I warned, uh, and and you know. Sean pitched, Sean pitched this movie to me with songs. So I'm like, all right, you, want, you guys want songs. I'm going to be des- designing this whole movie with songs. And I warned them that it was going to be expensive. Like, you know, that there would be a lot of songs in there. Um, so I did. I always put my first choices in. It's more like much of the music supervisor's chagrin because it's like they don't want you to go on Spotify and start pulling Stones and Doors and Nancy Sinatra. It's, like, it's too easy. But it's like I cut on the set as I'm working, I assemble it and then I'm throwing music on as I'm working. So as we're doing that shot, I, I threw the zombies on it and we never changed it. It just sort of had this sort of innocence and, and just enthu- like sort of enthusiasm about it. And it's like, they're all different. It's the same. We put the doors on the Baroness, which I didn't expect, but it's like you get that rhythm of that doors song like five to one. And it just feels like this tidal wave of dread coming. Like it's, <laughs> And it just worked. And it might have been intellectually not, maybe doesn't make sense, but it just emotionally worked for me. 
And you finish with uh, Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah, which again, I threw on as we were shooting that day and it never changed. And uh, <laughs> fortunately, nobody asked us to take it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, th- I think the Stones the Stones are okay. They're okay with their, their you know, yeah. music being used. If you <laughs> throw a Beatles track on, you might have had problems, but I think it'd be... <laughs> well, we got a few, like we got a Tina Turner Beatles uh come together that's true that is true well Craig on that note uh, I will let you go Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure Craig Gillespie thank you so much thank you Chris thank you okay so that was Craig Gillespie and now it's time for us to get into Cruella now I always like to start off these spoiler specials by canvassing the panel and getting your general opinions on the movie and I have to say that I had fairly low expectations going into Cruella but I really like it. I've seen it a couple of times now. I think it's stylish as all get out. Craig Gillespie is throwing the camera around like a Scorsese tribute act, but it kind of works. It's drenched in fashion. Can you be drenched in fashion? Of course you can. It is. It's drenched in fashion. It's got dogs. It's got Emma Stone pecking an accent and sticking to it occasionally. But, you know, it's so good and so deliciously devilish and enjoyable that whenever it came time to write our halfway point of 2021 top 10 films, I didn't put it on the list, but it was certainly in the top 20. Now, that surprised me. Did it? Where, where do you guys stand in this? You, you Cruella, pro-Cruella or anti-Cruella? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one because what excitement I did have about the film initially did get slightly subsided by a little thing we call the pandemic. Uh, so when it did come around oh. again, oh, that that pesky thing. Um, yeah. When it did come back around again, I was, uh, it was like a secondary excitement that came through and I feel like those expectations were met. I really like Craig Gillespie. There's a real progression between Itania and this film in terms of the lengths that, uh, women are willing to go to in the name of success. Violent means are had. And also a really interesting tie to do with intergenerational evil and how that can impact people. I thought the fashion was great. I do believe fashion. you can fashion. I do believe you can drown in fashion. And I think you that's You can be drenched in fashion. Drenched in fashion. Drown yeah. in fashion. You can be set yeah. afire with a fashion. And that's very much what happens here. It's just lashings of opulence, which I really liked. It felt mm. kind of it had kind of notes of Ryan Murphy when Ryan Murphy used to be good. And I think it's Ode to London was really unexpected and worked really well for me. It kind of had shadows of like early Guy Ritchie to it, if you can believe. It's it's funny to think that he directed Aladdin. You're saying a lot of things film. that don't sound like compliments, but I know that you're meaning them <laughs> as compliments. I am nothing if not the queen of underhanded compliments, uh, <laughs> it's got, it's, Chris. It reminds me of Ryan Murphy and Guy Ritchie. And, oh, that, but that's a good thing. It's when, a good thing. <laughs> at their peak, at, their, at yes. their height, which are just, again, compliments and also names that I just, I know that Guy Ritchie has, has directed a Disney film, but again, just not mm-hmm. names that you would necessarily expect to see in comparison with the Disney film Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe that speaks a lot to the fact that it doesn't feel too connected to Disney it doesn't feel too canon to me if I think it works really well as a standalone uh, film in its own right and I think a lot of that comes down to Emma Stone's performance as well yes uh, yeah she's fantastic this Emma Stone now Helen yeah regular listeners of the Empire podcast will know that origin tales for bad guys in which they are they turn out to be maybe not quite so bad after all are just 
it's like catnip to you, isn't it? You just love it. <laughs> yeah, catnip to a dog. No, uh, I, yeah. I, I, I hate them. I hate them. I hate this habit of that Disney has of self cannibalizing its entire back catalogue. And, and and I'll be honest, like I am a you you know me, I'm a very much a, a blockbuster apologist, a Disney apologist. A couple of films recently have really tested me on this, and I'm beginning to really, really, really object to that and and be desperate for fresh, genuinely fresh content from Disney. I called it content. I don't even mean content. I mean stories. I want characters. I want new people I have not seen before. So that's a bit of an issue. So yeah, just going in on paper, I object to this this film's existence. I do not think <laughs> Cruella is redeemable. I don't think she should be redeemed. I think it makes a nonsense of 101 Dalmatians, which I think is a fun film. Um, I recently listened to the Disney Versity episode about it, in fact. Um, oh. Yeah, uh, cross-pollination. But I, I just, I, I really, it, none of it makes sense. You have to look at this as a completely separate film that has nothing to do with 101 Dalmatians we have seen because it doesn't make any sense if it does. There is no way to make sense of that film and I'm sure they're going to retcon it in the sequel and they're going to try and I'm still going to sit here and go, no, no. If I may be so bold, yeah. I think you should look at this more as a Cruella variant. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> it. I think that's it. But also just like, no, Cruella is Cruella. There are certain things that, you know, a Loki variant has still has to be Loki. He still has to be trickster of some sort, even if he's an alligator. A Cruella still has to hate dogs or at least not care about dogs or at least be... You know, and, and and not have a cute, adorable mutt that she hangs around with for her entire life. That's not cruel. That can't be cruel. It doesn't. I. Mm, yeah. mm. <laughs> Having said all that, I thought this did as well as it possibly could, given that huge limitation for me. I think Emma Stone is an insanely charming. She almost succeeded in making me like her character in La La Land, who is a nothing. Um, she did uh, w- did the same here, and Wait I think she's great. Wait a second yeah. here. Don't bring your anti-La La Land propaganda into this podcast. <laughs> yeah. La La Land's not here to stand up for itself. And another thing I hate. No, oh again. my God. Um, it's, another d- it's another day of Helen banging on about La La Land. <laughs> I just think it's... it's I think she's fantastic. Obviously, Emma Thompson is fantastic. When has she ever not been? I'm I'm genuinely interested. Can you give me a, an answer? And it, and it was charming. It was well done. It also features Liberty, my favourite place, certainly my favourite shop on the face of the planet. So uh, I, I was very up for that. So lots of it was cool. I thought the the fashion stuff, the sort of Dior mm-hmm. versus Vivian Westwood kind of mm-hmm. aesthetic of it was great. I just, I, I, I just, why, why is it Cruella? Just make make a film that isn't Cruella. Oh. <laughs> I know, but then we get into the whole business of if you pitched this idea, would it get made at this budget level? And you maybe know, not. You, you know, but then you maybe use you this make as it a Trojan horse buzz- to go oh, in and investigate I, other things, don't it's you? Not, oh, it's not. Uh, <laughs> I'm just so exasperated by it. But, but, let villains be villains, people. Come on. But here's a question. Here's a question. If they let, for example, and Ben, I know we haven't brought you in. Uh, ben at the moment is in what I can only describe as a sort of hurricane situation. Uh, which is weird because he doesn't live. You don't live that far away oh, no, from us, really. Oh no, it's moved to me. I, I was going to say it's moved I, to Helen. I can hear all the rain now, but it's not from my end because it stopped here now. So it's, it must be must be by you guys. It's oh me. my god! I'll ah, be with you so in a minute, Chris. Which means I'm safe. I can see it. Now. I can see the rain outside my window. You can see Lorraine. At the M. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, it's a uh, yeah it's a real pea super out there, and no mistake. That's not what a pea super is. 
<laughs> I know. Okay. I'm just checking. Oh, yeah. Here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. Oh, yes. The sideways rain as prophesied by the ancient ones, or Ben, five minutes ago, oh. when he said there was sideways rain. Anyway, that's not sideways rain. That's not let sideways rain deter this podcast. Let me ask you a question. I'll bring in Ben on this, because Ben's been patiently waiting for the apocalypse to end before he can chip into this. Could there have been a version of this movie, Ben, where Cruella is unapologetically Cruella being dastardly and evil and vicious and wanting to skin puppies? Do you think that could have worked? You know, I think it's 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 a movie that tries to have its cake and eat it. I think, fees a fee, her villainy. But do you think it could have actually gone there? I don't know. I think you need to have an element of a character being sort of rootable, if not likable. And I think it treads that line quite well for me in terms of not giving Cruella a total get out. She does bad things. And yes, she is somebody who has lots of bad things happen to her. But I don't think they necessarily sand all the edges off her. Um, I mean, if, you, if you're talking about kind of all out Cruella, evil, evil uh, representations in film, l- look at the Glenn Close live action film from the 90s, which is Black great, Man. but that is still sort of secondary to the Roger and Anita stuff. Like it's still balanced out by that. I don't know if just Cruella being completely evil and snarling and cackling all over the place is a movie. And I think they do a really good job of kind of keeping the essence of Cruella here. I think they do, especially as it becomes this sort of performative uh, character effectively that Estella puts on or this other sort of persona within her that she allows to flourish and, and leans into. I don't think it necessarily lessens that, but I think it just adds a few more dimensions to her that make her a slightly more rootable character, especially in terms of just putting her up against the Baroness. Like this is what you do. You, you take someone who is a villain and is still doing bad things or kind of, isn't a completely good character, but you put them up against somebody more evil, like Emma Thompson's Baroness, who for me completely steals this film. I, I, like, I think Emma Stone is great in this, but Emma Thompson, every single scene, every single moment with her, she just tears it up and chews the scenery and has the best time with it. I, I think that's the way of doing it. Of And for me, that, that balance worked of let's not totally try and redeem Cruella in the way that they tried to with Maleficent, which really didn't work for me. That felt like a completely mm. different read. It, that just doesn't align at all with the Sleeping Beauty stuff. But I do agree with Helen, by the way, when you were saying that really this functions quite nicely because it is sort of outside the 101 Dalmatians thing, which the animated version is set in the 60s based on a book from the 50s and this takes place in the 70s it's like just an alt universe sort of what if style let's do a Cruella film that tells Mm. a possible origin story in this really interesting era that doesn't necessarily have to connect to 101 Dalmatians as we know it and for me it's all the better for that I don't think it can ever really connect the dots between this version of Cruella and the version of Cruella we've seen before in the Glenn Close movies and the animated uh, movie of course because it basically is saying that that that's well, it's a construct. So it's a name, it's a pseudonym, it's something she'll hide behind, and you know it can be as as evil as she wants it to be, or as benevolent as she wants it to be. And but you know that is not her. It's not what she is. But there are a couple of moments in the movie that I bump up against um, a little bit in relation to that. There is the there are moments when she slides into the Cruella persona a little bit uh, and treats. Jasper and Horace, who are ever so lovely, mm. uh, just abominably. And 
I, I bumped up against those a little yeah. bit. I, th- yeah. I, you know, it, it was it felt weird because it was what you kind of want from Cruella, but it's not what you want from this Cruella. Yeah, it's not what you want from the protagonist of your movie. Also, it's what you want yeah. from your villain. This is again an essential problem of making a villain a protagonist. <laughs> Jesus. Ah. Anyway. Yeah, I think it, it cut. It's that that corner in the storytelling far too quickly for me, and the motives were all laid out. I will say. I don't think that Corella was ever portrayed as a redeemable character. She was never inherently good. Even when she was young, she was a little bit shitty, wasn't she? It was the people around her. It was Horace and Jasper and her her mother, I'm using quotations, who kind of imbue her with their kindness and their good intentions. And she just kind of charges around and, you know, manages to get from day to day. But then when the big reveal comes, when we find out that her mother was murdered and then, you know, everything kind of snowballs from there, the 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 correlation between where she was and where she heads is just it's breakneck speed and it just it makes yeah, it makes no sense. I was smarting on behalf of, of Jasper and Horace and they are far more patient than I would have told her to fuck off, to be honest. <laughs> Quickly. You get your own necklace, darling. That might have, there might have been some notes from Disney on that one. This oh, yeah. this scene where Cruella tells him to fuck off. I mean, that's a... Do we need that, really? I think so. I You could tell this was a film that wanted to swear as well. You could tell there were a few, there were mm. a few curses in that... Uh, in that in that girl's chest that wanted to come out, but that PG uh, certificate wouldn't let them. I don't think that I ever felt she was irredeemable, and I think that's one of the problems I probably have with the film. <laughs> you want her to be irredeemable. <laughs> well, I kind of do. Like, I kind of want her to be Cruella, but this is the problem. If you're, you know, if you're having sympathy for the devil, then you kind of end up having sympathy for the devil. I actually do. I quite like Lucifer, but that's a different matter. But the hang on, sorry, doesn't like La La Land. Likes Lucifer. <laughs> I mean, the show, not necessarily oh, you know, okay. the, the yeah. evil one. Yeah, but, Backtrack in there. <laughs> but, it's your Tinder bio. <laughs> <laughs> likes Lucifer. Doesn't like La La Land, likes Lucifer. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it might work. Um, <laughs> the But no, I think the thing I, I felt is that there was quite a lot of you know, hesitation sometimes before she actually went and did something bad. And I don't think that was entirely outwardly imposed. I think there's a sense that she kind of knows when she's going off the rails and does it anyway sometimes, yes, but also hesitates sometimes and has second thoughts sometimes and shows a level of introspection that the cartoon Cruella absolutely does not have. And that's because Emma Stone is a human being and that's because Emma Stone is a, is a good and empathetic actress, but it, it's also a change, I think, from the like screaming monster that we saw before. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing with the animated version, though, right? Like, that's part of the fun of those uh, old Disney animated movies is the simplicity of them. That is a 70-minute movie, and mm. she is your villain. She is purely evil. She wants to skin all the puppies. Like, they thread bits of what you know from her into this film, which is basically that she and Anita were old-school friends, and now she's a crazy fashion lady, and she wants to skin the puppies. Like, that is as much story as you get. And in terms of the character, it works because she is just pure cackling evil, like spewing green smoke everywhere. But there's not a huge amount there. No. Do you know what I mean? Which is a Mm. great thing in the cartoon version. But if you're going to do this, you have to do more with it. And I think there's maybe even a reading where you go, okay, well, that Cruella is clearly a lot older than this Cruella that we see here. And that maybe over time, especially because all of her rebellion in this film 
comes through in fashion. That's kind of what I love about it, that this film is basically like a war of fashion. That is all mm. the violence, really, is catwalk violence and like cutting up the rules and... and Upstaging people. Yeah, so you could see a logical progression where she gets to the point that her kind of complete moral compass has degraded, but the evil deeds that she will do still all relate to violent mm. fashion. But that that is a long way in the future and that maybe at this point in time when she has found a bit of community with these kind of um, criminals and has this little crew going, that she will be questioning herself in moments here and there as she sort of leans into this side of herself that she has repressed for a long time, trying desperately to be a stellar and trying to be kind of the good side of herself. Maybe that's ultimately where it's going to go. So you have this idea of the the secular nature of of her personality and you know it reveals of course that the baroness is her mother so maybe she will become more like the baroness as, as time goes on mm. you also have this uh, element of this woman who is incredibly progressive and in, uh, innovative when it comes to fashion is about to live through the 80s and the 90s and that would be enough to make anyone turn to murder <laughs> <laughs> oh you could, I, I bet they'd go to the 80s for the next one well although you know they've kind of set it up that the you know, the Dalmatians are already there and set up, so I don't know if they can yeah. jump all the way to the 80s, but uh, I, I I bet there'll be a temptation to do it just for the crazy fashion. Oh, actually. you could do pure, like, new wave 80s would be great. Yeah, that would really work please. with Cruella. Like, go from the punk to the new wave would be awesome. Shell yeah. suits. No. <laughs> Nothing but shell suits. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, dear. That's what I want to see. The uh, the Dalmatian thing at the end, the uh, the post credit sting. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm such an idiot. It took me so long to realise that that was Roger and Anita. <laughs> even, <laughs> even, though, even though they're literally called Roger <laughs> and Anita. But it, it wasn't until the end. I was like, oh, that Roger. But they because were I nice. expected them to be Did more. Not- yeah. But I expect. I, yeah, I know. But I expected them to be, especially Roger, if Roger was going to be in this, which of course he is. But again, I referred to my earlier point about being an idiot. <laughs> You know, Kaiva Novak is fantastic, but he's barely in this film, especially once he gets fired by the Baroness. Mm. And so I didn't expect him to be the Roger. You know what I mean? <laughs> so at the end, when he gets the... <laughs> cover myself with glory here. But at the end, when he gets the uh, the package and he gets, and, you know, he gets Pongo, she gets Perdita, or yeah. the other way other way around. Uh, yeah. Pick, pick one. Pick a combination. Uh, anyway, they both get Pongo and Perdita, which is obviously going to lead to lots of doggy rutting and yeah. 101 Dalmatians and all, all that sort of stuff. What do you think of that little twist, that little retcon? Unless it isn't a retcon and I've just forgotten that Cruella is responsible for bringing them together. That's that's an interesting wrinkle, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again. Helen's in full agreement. It goes Again, it goes to kind of making her a little bit more sympathetic and also... You know, tying her in even more closely to this couple and their and their dogs for reasons, I guess. Does more it... Helen, more Machiavellian. Is she though? I mean, she is this... planting the seeds. Is she? I mean, she yes, literally. But is she aware that that's like is is that on purpose? I don't think it is. I don't think she knows that these two are going to fall in love and get married and have Dalmatians in the same year that she's looking for a new look because she's gotten tired of stripes. Like I don't feel like she's <laughs> planning that far ahead. Um, and, and I don't actually think that they've set her up as someone who will murder 101 puppies yet. Honestly, I just feel like they don't know. They don't know no. what they're going to do and they needed to do something 
to bring people back towards 101 Dalmatians at the end. So they've done this with two characters. I mean, does she even have much screen time with Roger? I don't think she did. I thought I most of it was so much so the... But the, that allows them to then still have a cute meet-cute at some point in the in presumable sequel. But then why did Cruella send Roger a Dalmatian if she's not spent any time with him? It just feels a little bit... I don't know, Anita, because mm. she had the relationship with Anita. She didn't have any relationship with Roger. Roger got fired by the Baroness and left. I, d- I didn't see Cruella and Roger have any screen time. I might have missed that completely. But that Cruella just felt- and Roger did, yes. Oh, okay. Well, then I take that back. I mean, I, I'm all for giving uh, Kevin Novak more screen time. And that casting did give it away to me a little bit because they misused Jamie Dimitrio vastly. But when oh. Oh, but when Kevin Novak came up, I was like, no, 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 they're going to have to do something more with this. They can't have him sidelined as well as a, as kind of a nobody. Well, they tried. <laughs> they really did try. Kind of scrabbling at the hemlines kind of character. I was like, yeah. nah. Yeah. No, you can't I really liked uh, Jamie Dimitri in this. I, I wanted to see more of his smarmy liberty manager. I, I saw it in Eurovision, the Eurovision film, though. They did exactly the same with him then. I just, I, I adore him. I want to see him do bigger comedy. But he was, he was plenty great. I'm personally mm. offended that Liberties would have a smarmy manager. Come on, people. <laughs> so pretty. It's a, it's 1970s. Was it, it was a different era. Different era. era that's right. That's mm. right. Different um, era. I, I, I will admit to laughing aloud at the sheer balls of the film when they had two Dalmatians push her mum off a cliff. <laughs> I was like, if this is her motivation, that's just so hilariously on the nose. I am absolutely here for it. It's so stupid. Yes. And they kind of they kind of obviously dialed back from that. Obviously, no sane person would blame the Dalmatians in such a circumstance. Anyway, they are dogs. But it just made me laugh. It's like, oh yeah, she wants revenge because a Dalmatian murdered her parents. It's just all right, Batman. It's I think they did that in a really playful way, and it slightly yeah. annoyed me when this film came out that the instant very reductive Twitter take was like, oh, Cruella, the film, oh, she hates Dalmatians because Dalmatians killed her mum, and it's like, well, sort of, but also there's loads more to it than that, and there's a that's a very sort of Twitter <laughs> re- film Twitter reductive. Uh, assessment of of what that is. I think it was a really like fun and playful way of tying all the iconography in and still tying it back to the Baroness and this extremely kind of arch performance from uh, from Emma Thompson and mm. the theatricality of the whole thing because Cre- Cruella is an insanely theatrical character and that the mm. world that she inhabits in this film and all the other characters feel very theatrical as well. So the whole thing is playing out on this really kind of heightened, quite camp um, sort of yeah. register. And then, so I think to then turn that into like a pithy tweet of like, Dalmatians killed her mum was like a bit of a, oh, you clearly haven't seen the film because it's it's not as dumb as that sounds while also I mean, sort it, of it, being it, as dumb is, as that sounds. Yeah. <laughs> it is, but it's not, yeah. <laughs> Helen, Helen, would those dogs be prosecuted in a court of doggy law? N- no, because animals don't have, you know, mens rea, as we've discussed in relation to the winter soldier. But this is a court of doggy law. Well, I I guess dog said that I, I I don't have a degree in dog law, so I, I can't. Oh, speak you're not to you're that. not a forester. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> okay, I'm just saying because your 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 big argument about Bucky all the time is that mm-hmm. he's not in charge of his actions. He's not mm-hmm. responsible for all those people Correct. he killed in cold blood. He didn't. And uh, uh, whereas these dogs mm-hmm. pushed um, poor Emily Beecham mm-hmm. off that cliff yeah. to her demise, yeah. as Quint might say, and uh, you know it's not their fault. 
It's not their fault. I, I didn't say it was. Yeah, they. it might not be their fault, correct. But, um, mm. you know, no, it isn't their fault. They, they, they do not have mens rea. They, they did not commit murder. Okay, so let me ask you this uh, once again. I know you're not a qualified forester, but I'm going to ask you anyway. The the Baroness, yeah, she um she goes to the clink at the end. Mm. What do they got on her? Just um, attempted murder in full in full in full view of a hundred people. Attempted murder and murder. Confession of a murder. Yep. But no proof. So where does it does that hold up? If you if you confess, you can you know if you're, it can still hold up. Yeah, it can. Yeah. My question about the ending isn't about what they had on uh, on the Baroness so that she goes to jail. It's the fact that the mm. Baroness goes to jail but is still alive. But Corella's like, well, Hellhole's mine now. It's like, well, 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 the Baroness is still alive. How have you inherited no, that? No, it's because she has... Because um, she's the rightful she, heir of the estate. Yeah. Yes. Not the Baroness. And she signed yeah. it over ah, to Cruella Estrella. Signed it over to Cruella. Right, yes. I'm with you. I'm yeah. with you. You see? You see, you got it. You got it. It's not. It, it wasn't that you know. It was the Baroness is to mm. bequeath to Estella slash Cruella. It was already bequeathed to her by the Baron. I guess. Yeah. Would yeah. be his name. All right. Okay. Let's talk about the fact that in the sequel, Roger and Anita will be walking her beautiful little Dalmatian pups, Pongo and Perdita, and they'll be in the park. And the park will be Hyde Park or Regent's Park, but it won't be. It'll be in Greenwich because this is Greenwich <laughs> the movie. <laughs> And Greenwich gives the greatest performance I have seen in years because it is endlessly versatile. I mean, yeah. I did bump up against this because it's so specific in the animated <laughs> one that they're in Regent's Park. That is where they're supposed to be. And it's where they name check in this one as well. They're like, look at us sitting here in Regent's Park <laughs> when they're clearly in the old Naval College in Greenwich where Chris mm. and I had a picnic a couple of weeks ago. Like we sat right yes. by that fountain uh, where all yes. of the Greenwichy Regent's Parky stuff happens. I guess it's an unavoidable. They just had that area to shoot in, um, but they could have just changed the location. It's still a London park, you know, and they, that's what they did for the uh, the nineties live action one. It's it's not yeah, St um, James's. It's St James's Park instead, and they don't tr- try and kind of wreck on it. And say, oh no, we're in we're in Regent's Park. Look at Primrose Hill. You never see anything <laughs> in uh, in London Fields, do you? You never just see <laughs> no, just a couple of kids falling in no. love in London Fields. You don't, not even in London Fields. It's a big, yeah, it's a big flat green area and that film never came out. So what are you going to yeah. do? It kind of did, actually. Well, it kind of did, did, yeah. Yeah, eventually. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's not even that. This is, I'm not getting Greenwich the movie. Yeah. There's so much of Greenwich in this, obviously. I, I live around the area. Helen lives nearby as well. Uh, and uh, it's it's fun little Greenwich bingo. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun fact, but I'm not going to say which scene. My street is in this movie. Yeah, um, yeah my actual street, uh, including... My bedroom window is in this movie, but uh, again, I'm not going to tell you which scene, uh, lest people try and stalk me and uh, take my head as a trophy. Well, we can only dream. Um, but yeah, hey, no, I mean, all would the. They, would that be mens rea? <laughs> that would actually be. Um, but there'd also need to be an actus reus. So we'd actually also need to chop your head off, or it wouldn't that's, be a crime. That's what I'm saying. They would take my head as a trophy. Okay, but they probably would then have done both. They would have thought about it and done it. We're just thinking being, about it. What if they're being directed by a dark force, a sinister dark force to take my head as a trophy? I feel like anyway, we might be getting off topic. Should can we, we, have, talk about can this? we have a film court podcast? <laughs> right, an Empire's film court podcast. I'd love that. With special sub-series on dog law, yeah, cat uh-huh. law, 
Alien law, Why would you deny dogs, cats, and aliens their rights, Helen? What sort of monster are you? Oh my god! Look, alien law. Actually, I'm open to alien law. Right. Could come under international law. I think we've got a framework there to start from. But dog law and cat law is specifically See, not a thing. I I suspect very strongly you've forgotten most of this and it's you're just possible, bluffing your yeah, way through. That's true. Yeah, yeah, I I don't forget. There's not a lot of stuff from 20, 25 years ago that I remember. I'm very sketchy on song lyrics. So I don't know that I would remember all the law books that I had Did read. Did I not just recite the correct definition <laughs> for theft at the beginning of this podcast? Let me yes. let me shorten it for you. I did. So clearly I remember brilliantly. I remember that one Objection. thing. <laughs> Film court. I want to see it. Film, Film court. court. Well, I will say um, if, you, if you follow, I think it's Secret Barrister on Twitter sometimes does um, film, oh, Jeff. film breakdowns. Yeah, I know Jeff. Sometimes does film breakdowns and goes through, you know, the likes of Legally Blonde and and explains the legal yeah. ramifications thereof. Absolutely fantastic. If if one of those is happening, do check it out. I have a title for you, by the way. Men's yeah. Raya and the Last Dragon. You know, it works. <gasps> wow, yes. Okay. I'm sick of sure. film court. Film court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Film court is much better. Uh, boom. Objection overruled. Objection. There you go. Sustained. I, I think there was something I was gonna say. Oh, Who yeah. knows? Greenwich. 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 Um, I, I love that it's also host to pretty much all the fashion shows. Um, so anytime you see an yes. impressive sort of neoclassical building that the the Baroness is about to have a, a fashion show in, Greenwich. Pretty much Greenwich. They do incredibly well mm. with that because mm. it's the, the old Royal Nova College in Greenwich is a wonderful building and wonderful grounds, but um, it's not huge. And so they do very, very well at making it into like a dozen different locations yeah. in this movie. And uh, and you wouldn't know, I think, if you didn't live nearby. But well, there you go. We've, we've, ruined, we've ruined the magic. <laughs> yeah, we've ruined the magic. There is a great moment where she pops out for a lunch break outside of Liberty and it is genuinely the grotty little alley. As someone mm. who was drunk at the pub down that alley multiple times, it's definitely the grotty little alley outside of Liberty. I hate it when they... Um, actually, another you know Emily Beecham film which I've already forgotten the name of. It's it's a woman's name and it's just one woman's name, but she's in this film and one second she's in South London and the next she's in Clapton. And I know mm-hmm. it's a very specific thing to London audiences, but if you know, you know, and it's really jarring. So I like that this was um, very authentic to the area. Like it definitely was that grotty little, even though it would have been a nightmare to go over with like post-production, it was very much the alley outside of Liberty. Yes. Mm. Uh, have you ever woken up inside a window display at Liberty? That's not for here. <laughs> Are you thinking of um, Daphne, by the way? Yes, I am. Where is she? She's somewhere in South London, and then the next thing you know, she's in Clapton. And it's just one of those things that to most of the country, but to this very loud and specific London dweller, it's really annoying. Hmm. Um, but yeah. Took me right out of the movie. That did <laughs> took me right out of it. Uh, should we talk about some other stuff? Let's talk sure. about the the movie's style. It is dripping in style. Mm. I love that that oneer. I know it's not technically a oneer, but in Liberty's tracking shot, that's soundtracked to "Time of the Season" by the Zombies. Uh, you also have the incredible costume design uh, by Jenny Beaven, yeah. who is absolutely going to win an Oscar for this. And if she doesn't, then something is either seriously wrong or another film with even better design has come up. <laughs> Uh, and the hair and makeup by Nadia Stacey is all mm-hmm. really, really good. Yeah, yes. absolutely fantastic on both kinds. Yeah, just an easy brilliance to it, like undisputedly so. I also 
really appreciated the heist sequences. I think this worked really well in that that regard in that it didn't overshadow the rest of the film, but it was just really well choreographed, slick little kind of mini heists that they got to do between them that were always really fun. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed yeah, that, that part of it. It's such a stylish movie in so many ways, obviously, in, in the fashion sense. But I think the fact that Beth, at the start fashion. of this podcast, brought, brought up names like uh, Ryan Murphy and early guy Ritchie and Chris, you mentioned Scorsese as well. And I see all of that in there. And those yes, are directors. going up here, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a spectrum of directors there. Um, but all yeah. of those people, the things that they are known for or that their signatures are is, is their style and their sense of style and their very cinematic visual style and i think the fact that you can see all of that in this film it's it's way more cinematic than i expected it to be Mm. it's way more stylish than it had any need to be and i like that it's pushing the boat out a bit there in that sense this film doesn't need to be Mm. as cool as slick as stylish as it is considering it is exists because it's ip but the fact that it does all of this cool stuff. It has all of these incredible kind of tracking shots and mm-hmm. really, really just slick moments with all the soundtrack stuff going on as well. I, I, that really, really impressed me when I saw it, just uh, the sense of style that it has. And if you're going to apply that to a character, yes, apply it to Corella uh, with that sort of fashion link. It all ties together. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the, 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 the looks of this film are ginormous and particularly for the Baroness, and Cruella herself, which is obviously as it should be, entirely as it should be. Um, but I, I loved the way that they leaned into it and leaned into the sort of generational swap that was happening around that time in fashion, and that, that you know it is a real thing. They they did ground it in something. Thank you, Chris. Um, which I think gave it a little bit of extra resonance, and I thought that was really clever. I also think that they. You know the showpieces that needed to work. You know that what turned out to be the insect dress was Ooh, genuinely amazing. stunning, and it mm. you know it works on every level it needs to work on. It looks amazing. It looks innovative. It looks crazy and different. And then of course it has a you know a, a nasty trick up its sleeve as well. Um, so I just thought it was it was so cleverly done. And and again, even keeping the color palette relatively restrained for the two leads. And yet the film never feels in any way kind of monochrome. So it, it, it actually kind of, I think, heightens their style compared to everyone else who's kind of in all these, you know, slightly scruffier looking clothes by comparison. I think it uh, works brilliantly. The bin lorry dress is like one of my favourite yeah. things. That whole sequence, her tumbling yeah. out of the back of the bin lorry, s- surrounded by all the rubbish, and then like cackling, clinging onto the uh, the bin lorry as it drives away with the big train flowing behind her. I think it was just like, just that is probably the peak of this film for me. It's just an amazing look. <laughs> I think if look. Billy Porter was there, he would have passed out. Just <laughs> oh, yeah, passed out. Like, yeah. I'm not a finger snapper, but I would have snapped my fingers <laughs> at that reveal because it mm. just kept going, didn't it? She kind of flopped out. Flopped isn't the word. It was more there was more agency than a flop. But she kind of mm. barreled out of the back, and then that was enough in itself. She'd like, you know, fronted up against the Baroness, and then suddenly it just kept going. That dress just kept going. I love it. It's still it. going. It's it's, it's just gone past going. my window, <laughs> <laughs> fluttering in the Greenwich breeze. Uh, so you guys were happy with the the decision to switch this to the 70s and uh, embrace that sort of very brash aesthetic or mm. brash aesthetic, if you will, you know, that, that, that the punk side 
of it all. Because it would have been so easy to, just to set this in the 60s and be maybe just a little sterile. But I, I like how bold and adventurous it was. Yeah, I, I think it makes more sense. Like, just look at Cruella's hair in the cartoon, right? Just think of that. That is not a 60s hairdo, even at its wildest. It does kind mm. of, it feels much more punk than that. And even though her style is perhaps not punk exact, well, it's actually not far off. It's almost Riot Girl. Mm. In the uh, in the cartoon, with the sort of the oversized coat and the slightly kind of almost like slip dress um, outfits, you know, you could almost have put her in the nineties, I think, with that and done something there. But then you get into heroin chic and all that kind of stuff, and you probably don't want to. So I think it makes absolute sense to kind of essentially make her a punk and make her part of that movement and make her take on the establishment that way, and also just lean into this idea that she's a rebel more than you know a psycho which obviously they're trying to do because they're trying to make her less objectionable. So where do you stand in? The, the, she's less of a rebel and a psycho, but where do you stand on what I think is one of the pivotal scenes in the film, which is where she goes to the fountain in Regent's Park slash Greenwich, uh, and she has that moment of, of reckoning with her past, and she basically outlines her mission statement and her desire to burn her name to the ground and essentially become Cruella, hmm. um, which kind of backtracks on for a couple of scenes later, but uh, that's a really interesting shot. As as Craig Gillespie said, you know, it's it's shot in in one take. It was very very near the end of the day. They were losing the light. They decided to do it as a winner. Uh, Emma Stone's fantastic in that moment. But what do you make of that? Because that's a moment where she seems to be finally disconnecting from sanity a little bit. The, the problem is. In real life, sure, she's disconnecting from from sanity. In movie terms, she's going on a mission of revenge, which, you know, oh, is it Tuesday? It's another mission of revenge in a movie. Uh, you know, th that happens all the time. It, it, it feels like it doesn't feel extraordinary enough for it to come across as crazy. Or, or a break, a psychotic break. But isn't it interesting in that that's sense. a mission of revenge against her own mother? And she knows it at this point, doesn't I mean, she? Uh, we've seen a lot of missions of revenge against fathers. I don't know why you wouldn't have one against a mother who mm. wanted to kill you at birth. <laughs> it seems perfectly reasonable to me. <laughs> People have killed their fathers for far less. So. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, should we talk very quickly then about that relationship, the central relationship between uh, Estella slash Cruella and the Baroness slash the Baroness, because we never actually learned her name. And the Baroness is really an interesting figure as well. Beth, you talked right back at the beginning of the, the podcast about... You know, the, the the lengths in certain fiction that women will go to to get revenge and this is but this is obviously a film that pits woman against woman and it has other things in its mind as well vis-a-vis -vis the Baroness in that she is a female baddie who is analogous I would say to all the horror stories we've heard in recent years about toxic bosses. I'm not going to say necessarily toxic male bosses, but it's absolutely there. But, you know, those things where she's tormenting people with these nine minute power naps and all her weird demands and slashing assistants and literally drawing blood and not caring how long or how hard people work. There's certainly something going on there. So what was your take on that and also the relationship between uh, the two Emmas? Well, I think the groundwork has certainly been laid uh, and it's interesting that what is perceived, I mean, and this is something perhaps we'll get into, but whether this is indeed a children's film in the same vein as 
No. Perhaps yeah. not. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. It, it, it's not inherently. So I think the groundwork's been laid. I mean, the very obvious comparison is Devil Wears Prada, especially in terms of fashion, right mm. down to, you know. Fashion. Fashion. Turn to the right. Especially considering Emma Thompson has essentially inherited this cocked eyebrow from um, Meryl Streep's character in The Devil Wears mm. Prada. So the groundwork has been laid. I think within this kind of medium, it works in that it mm -hmm. is a fairy tale. Essentially, it is rooted in another story. And so we can get away with interrogating that and making a pantomime of it as well. I think that's important. I think outside of this context, it wouldn't have worked so well because it has been exhausted. You know, this exhausting kind of toxic workplace, toxic, you know, we say there's been all that discourse about how the boyfriend in The Devil Wears Prada is, is the real enemy when in fact it's this this horrible romanticizing of, of this workplace. And, you know, this this film doesn't portray the Baroness's workplace as thrilling. It's it's miserable. Mm. Um, and the fact that Estrella thrives in it is is definitely pointed. <laughs> but yeah, I think, again, under under the guise of this being a fairy tale in a fairy tale format. It works. The fact that it's a pantomime, it's exaggerated, mm. uh, works. I think, yeah, outside of this, not so much, unless it's something like The Favourite, which which again, there are some direct lines with this. You've got mm -hmm. this kind of, yeah. there's definitely a queer element to The Baroness, I think, and Emma Thompson bloody knows it. Um, and, and, you know, this idea of social climbing at the expense of other people. So that all... I guess, yeah, under the, the guise of Disney, that's kind of fun to see. But yeah, outside of it, I think this would have fallen completely flat. Yeah, yeah, this this isn't a realistic uh, critique of the workplace, I don't think. Um, which is a shame, because we could do with more of that from companies like Disney. <laughs> 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 Except they may be aware that they're not exactly in a position to throw stones, I don't know. But it, yeah, it, there, there is. I think it's good that the film avoids, largely at least, avoids any sort of yay girl boss oh, God, kind of yeah. elements, you know, because these are extraordinarily toxic women. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, they both are, yeah. Need to be acknowledged as such. So I think that's a good thing. Um yeah. Yeah. Leave poor Jasper and Horace alone, you monsters. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, they're just trying their best. God. Yeah. I do really like that, actually, the complete absence of well, what I thought to be an absence of forced feminism, mm. even down to that incredible soundtrack. There was, it didn't feel gendered in any way. And the fact that the two women were, I mean, it, it exists within the fashion world, which I guess is, it's pretty gendered in itself, although Ish. I did. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, at that time, most of the designers were still well. Even now, most of the big designers are still men. So it's it's a it's a world that's coded feminine, but not actually one where women point. necessarily thrive. So, yes, yes, yeah. I mean, who are the big designers these days? River Island, Reese, H and M. I, you know, you're such an expert, Chris. Wow, all, <laughs> all just reeling all of off these names. The top yeah. Stop. <laughs> yeah, Harold and Maud. That's what H and M stands for, isn't it? So, yeah, Top Shop. <laughs> Burton menswear. Oh, imagine Tim Burton menswear. That's a store I'd go to. Oh, with the stripy trousers. Oh, yeah. that'd be so good. Do you have any tops that don't have scissor hands? <laughs> <laughs> bum 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 bum. <laughs> anyway, uh, we got to wrap this thing up. A uh, couple of last quick things. Uh, Beth, I'm glad you mentioned the soundtrack. Where do we stand the soundtrack? Sometimes a little on the nose, a little semekasi. But Super on the nose. Couldn't have been more on the nose. It was like being punched on the nose repeatedly. <laughs> by, good, on, no, by good songs. By good no, no. songs. Well, you've got Ken Dodd in there. Like, I, I say, if you're going to like do like an obvious needle drop, you're not going to Ken Dodd. But 
at the same time, at the end, you go, oh, are they going to play Sympathy for the Devil or the Deville? Are they going to do that? Yes, they're going to do that. But also, I'm kind of thinking, I don't know what else they could have used. Nothing about this film is subtle. It did not bother me at all that the soundtrack <laughs> wasn't subtle either. It felt like it lent into the fun, over-the-top, punky, cranked-up feeling of the whole thing. So, yes, do I want to be mm. your dog? Do Sympathy for the Devil? Like, go for it. I, I had a blast with the soundtrack for this, and I think it, it gave a lot of energy to the film so yeah right. was it was it pretty first base yes did i mind not at all do you know what and i'll take it under over any original song from the modern disney films any day of the week not a single <gasps> song from a from a one of the live action disney films oh, has the backtracking has begun already no, no. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, no, none of the live action Disney films have yet to produce like a real banger. And I'm glad that they didn't take that route here and just relied instead on a on a really good soundtrack instead. Alan Menken would like to chat for Enchanted. Yeah, Alan Menken has entered the conversation. <laughs> um, piss off, Menken, we're nearly done. Uh, what about the box ticking? Did you think it was egregious or just the right kind of knowing, you know, the things like the the defil? Things like her being a terrible driver, yeah, all that stuff. Did you were you okay with that? I was that totally okay with that. I, I well, because I think it was taking all these things, like I said, that in the animated one, are just like little moments here and there, or just snippets of what we know about her, and spins that out into part of the character. So that I love when she drives the the car for the first time, she's careening around the corners. That that is the way that she drives. That is her entrance into the film in the animated version. All of these things, I, I feel like they just looked at the animated one and said, look, there's not much here, but what is there is really iconic. So let's just take those bits and we'll just seed them in where we can. Um, that that felt Except like it tied smoking. it into the character. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the line that Disney will not cross Which these days. Anymore. Nobody smoked in the 70s. <laughs> I stand corrected, I guess. Sorry, I meant to say nobody smoked less than 60 a day in there the 70s. <laughs> I wonder if they would have still made the smoke green. Maybe they couldn't get a realistic green <laughs> Maybe. smoke. Maybe that's what happened to her next time. She's just like hacking away through two packs of Bensons every single day. Uh, might explain the voice. Who knows? Uh, last but not least, Jasper and Horace. Uh, mm. I've said this on the regular podcast, but Paul Walter Hauser's Cockney accent is a thing of beauty yeah. and um, is should be held up as a shining example to all American actors that it can be done. And yes, I'm looking at you, Dick Van Dyke. And... <laughs> Then my mom Miranda. <gasps> you heard me. You heard me. I love him, but he does have one flaw in that arena. La la la, I'm not listening. No, it's true. Mm. It's la la land? Absolutely. I thought you didn't like <laughs> la la land. <laughs> and yeah, I said Fry, la la land, good. I'm not listening. So. <laughs> You're missing out. It's really good. City of stars. Are you shining out of what version did you watch, Chris? The Randy Newman version? I watched version? the Randy Newman version. <laughs> City of stars. Hey, everybody, it's Randy Newman. Oh, okay. It's been a long time since I did that. Anyway. Um, Those guys are awesome, though. And like you said, Joel Fry as well is, is yeah. great in this they're so much fun together um and i think they give uh, it's nice to have those characters around cruella they make her a more likable character i think again that's part of what i liked about this is that i don't think for me they softened cruella too much but they put her with these other characters who you really like who mm -hmm. are in this criminal gang they're doing sort of bad things but they're just trying to get by and survive and um, they're just such playful characters, really fun performances, and we can't end this podcast without mentioning Wink, like the one-eyed chihuahua of all oh the dogs in this movie. <laughs> yes, there are 
Dalmatians, but they're evil Dalmatians. The best dog in this movie is the one-eyed Chihuahua called Wink, who I just loved so much. They put him in a party hat. I loved the relationship between him and and uh, is it Jas- Jasper or Horace, whichever one is Paul Waterhouse's Horace. character. Horace. 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 Yeah. Horace and Wink was just a delight from start to finish when they put Wink in the little uh, rat, costume rat costume when they had to mm. pretend to be exterminators. <laughs> oh, so good. <sighs> <laughs> All right, yeah. I mean, I, I was taken out of the movie by the fact that it, it clearly took those Dalmatians several weeks to have a shit. So that was the... <laughs> that was the moment that it lost It was a couple of days and they were just working yeah. super duper fast. It's I was fine. taken out by Mark Strong in a wig, so... <laughs> oh, we haven't oh, even why? mentioned Mark Strong. Why have Mark Strong and then do nothing with him? Mm. Oh, come on, people. Oh, yeah, that's the, that's the Tucci curse, I think. They do that sort mm. of every other film Stanley Tucci is in. He is, he is grossly misused. Um, mm. And I feel like that is, as is the case with Mark Strong. Helen, do you have any, uh, any suggestions for what they might have done with Mark Strong? Mm. Mm. Golly. Doggy doggy. Thank you, Beth, for going there. I opened the door. You went through it. And on that note, oh my God, oh I God, hope Mark Strong doesn't listen to this. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry Mark. Going, I think the Empire Podcast wanted to do doggy doggy with me. Um, anyway, that is it for this Cruella spoiler special. Hey, peachy, friendly fun for all the family. <laughs> <laughs> You'd maybe get a 12 for that. Corella's a 12 then, so. Yeah. Sure. Sure, sure let's go with that. Uh, anyway, uh, keep and peel for the next spoiler special. God knows what it's going to be. Um, we're going to record one in a second, but whether that goes up first, who knows? Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing as ever. And until we meet again, it is goodbye from my three colleagues of such lethal cunning squadcast names. Let's see. Swanella de Webb. Swanella de Web. She, pleb. Uh, something about being a pleb. Something a pleb. She doesn't oh, no. scare you. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't scare you. It's a massive spider web. Okay, so yes. She rammed web and web. <laughs> you rhymed web and web. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I rhymed web and de web. Oh, okay. Very, very different. Uh-huh. Very different. Um, anyway, don't don't mock me. I'm one of the greatest freestylists of our of our generation. Uh, it's Beth Webb. Goodbye, Beth Webb. Tara, thanks. Yes, yeah, that's 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 that. Uh, it is goodbye from official <laughs> official Wink Stan account, Ben Travis. <laughs> goodbye, Wink forever. He's great. Your your smile as Chris recited that name was just amazing. <laughs> I've never seen Ben look smugger. <laughs> It's a good dog. <laughs> oh, dear, dear, dearie me, dearie me. It's goodbye from Dalmatian Me Crazy, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me, uh, rather boringly named Justice for Greenwich. I don't even know why I wrote that. That doesn't make any sense. It's not funny. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, uh, I'm off to send an email to Mark Strong's publicist and it's simply entitled Empire Doggy Doggy Question Mark. <laughs> I'm so I'm so sorry, Mark. I'm so sorry. So sorry. We're Apologies. not these people. You are. You absolutely are those people, and you should own it. Uh, and we'll report back and see how see how we get on. We'll report back and see how we got on. <laughs> yes. dear, 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 Mark Strong's, dear Mark Strong's publicist. This may be an unorthodox request. <laughs> 
But would your client be up for doggy doggy with several members of the podcast team to report back? <laughs> all we need, all we need, is twenty to thirty minutes by next Thursday. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.